I am a democratic socialist, which means that I look to countries like Denmark, Finland, Norway, Sweden, European countries that have had social democratic governments, labor governments. And in many of these countries, Katie, what you have, as you well know, is you have free health care for all of the people as a right. Health care, which is more cost effective, by the way, per capita than it is in the United States. Do you know how much college education costs in Denmark, costs in Finland? It's zero. It's not anything at all. Strong child care systems. So when parents go to work, they know the kids are getting quality child care. Stronger retirement benefits. By and large, while these countries all have their problems, their governments do a lot better job representing the middle class of their countries than our government does, which is heavily dominated by big money interests. Welcome to The Shift, a new podcast with conversations on the future of energy and climate. Now, who you just heard was the American presidential candidate, Bernie Sanders, who's been outspoken on his vision for the United States that heavily borrows from those of the Scandinavian, or what some might like to say, Nordic countries, countries like Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. Now, his ideas of democratic socialism has definitely brought renewed attention towards these countries. And today, on this podcast, we'll narrow this attention down to energy policy. Energy transition away from fossil fuels to renewable energy is well underway in these countries, but we try and take a closer look at what are the factors that have led to this transition and what lessons has the rest of the world to learn from these small but significant nations. To discuss all of this, I have with me on this podcast, Ben Sovacool. Ben needs no introduction for anybody who closely follows the energy policy research space. He is the author of more than 330 refereed articles, book chapters and reports. His works have been endorsed by former President Bill Clinton, the Prime Minister of Norway, Gro Harlem Brundtland, and the late Nobel laureate, Elena Ostrom. He is currently heading the Sussex Energy Group and is a professor of energy policy at the Science Policy Research Unit at the University of Sussex. Here's the interview with Ben. sense of why are the Nordic countries uh, sort of spearheading or leading some of this work? Of course. Now, it's kind of difficult to kind of decompose, I suppose, the Nordic energy transition because it's actually a series of more discrete transitions that are occurring in electricity, transport, buildings, even things like capturing and storing carbon dioxide, something we call CCS, carbon capture and storage. So kind of you have those the kind of discrete transitions that are operating at different scales with different actors and different sectors at different times. But overall, I think the the interesting thing about the Nordic transition is twofold. The first is that it's it's driven by the governments. So unlike, say, perhaps in the U.S. or China, you, you have a real appreciation that we are up against our limits in terms of what we can emit in terms of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And you have, I think, a, a, an acceptance that cleaner forms of energy supply and transport Solar energy, wind energy, geothermal, electric vehicles have multitudes of benefits beyond just saving emissions. There are ways to improve energy security. There are ways to create jobs. There are ways to create export opportunities, right? Festus, co-benefits and all of that. So I think that there's an appreciation there in the halls of power that you don't have. And I think the second thing you have is a, a longer history of self-sufficiency, innovation, and environmental stewardship. Yeah. So you have this kind of cultural ecosystem mm. that is very nurturing to new ideas and very accepting that 
we are stewards of a planet and have to design technologies that uh, both minimize harm and maximize social benefit. Yeah, yeah. And is it largely a, if is it largely governance uh, or at the policy level, or do you see people also sort of you know as stewards of the environment, like you say? I mean, it's a mix of both. Yeah. I mean, both of those skills interact. Yeah. Right? I mean, think local globally or think yes. global locally and, and all of that. I think in the Nordic countries, it's a bit more complicated. It started out being government-led yeah. in the 70s. The Nordic countries, especially Denmark, yeah. was hit incredibly hard from the oil shock. Yeah. I mean, by 1973, I think 90-plus percent of their economy was on imported oil. Hmm. Uh, and so... They did drastic things. One of them is kind of funny. They banned driving on Sundays. And so there's, you know, people actually had to walk. And Denmark has some pretty rural areas. And yeah. so people were on bicycles or horses. Yeah. And they would get tickets if they actually wow. attempted to drive without permission or a license on Sundays. So you kind of have, uh, even in France at that time, as an aside, they had energy police yeah. who were going around Paris looking for people who left lights on. Etc. Really? So we kind of forget the draconian measures that the <laughs> European countries took yeah. back then. But even then, I suppose, in retrospect, there was a degree of stakeholder involvement. Yeah. And so grassroots organizations, kind of engineer entrepreneur groups, were yeah. still involved in discussions in yeah. the Nordic countries. And they're the ones who decided, for instance, that Denmark should say no to nuclear power. Mm. They're the ones who pushed for biopower, solar power, in places like Finland and Sweden. Um, so I think it starts, though, being mostly influenced by some shrewd policymakers and planners. But I think it grows into more of a broader social movement yeah. in the 90s and 2000s that has many actors at many different scales. One of the interesting things about Denmark, which is where I have the most experience, is political power doesn't lie mostly with parliament. Mm. It lies with what are called municipalities hmm. or communes. Yeah. I spell it with a K, communes. <laughs> and it's these communes, which are, I guess, kind of like municipal authorities, yeah. are almost like cooperatives. Yeah. right? They don't have full-time members. These are people who will serve on the commune board, but then they also have jobs doing other things, yeah. farmers, business yeah. people, etc. And it's a much more local take on energy planning and policymaking. And so... When you're looking at community benefits, right, mm. it's a kind of a hard sell to mm. say that we should pay Canada or Russia for oil. Yeah. It's a much easier sell to say, let's make our own energy. Let's yeah. invest in a wind farm. So I think you have this kind of, not necessarily micro scale, but I guess meso scale actor yeah. that serves as a system builder or intermediary, to yeah. use terms from the academic literature. And you have these types of communes and cooperatives also at hard work in Sweden, Finland, and Norway. Um Iceland is kind of by itself, yeah. but I think there it's just things are so cold yeah. and you're, in a, you're blessed with such geothermal heat resources mm -hmm. that also a kind of a geothermal regime has emerged that yeah. sees geothermal as the first choice uh, for heat and electricity. They don't even consider yeah. oil or other fossil fuels uh, as a major player. So uh, um, we, we notice that in the Nordic countries there is free market capitalism, but there's also a very strong welfare state. Mm. Um, has it ever come in conflict, the idea of, you know, sustainability and all these energy transition policies? Has it ever come in conflict with economic growth, which they also need? Not with growth. I mean, although I suppose you could have studies that probably could have projected a baseline <laughs> of where the Nordic region could yeah. be without carbon policies sure. and then where they are now. But I think from where I sit, within the Nordic region, you've still had acceptable 
moderate rates of growth. Mm. Granted, there's population decline. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and so I think if there's any culprit that they point the finger at for you know lower than expected growth Demography. rates, it's that. Yeah. But they don't seem to blame energy and climate policies. And in fact, you kind of see the opposite, that a lot of the co-benefits are monetized and recognized. Uh, and I suppose the other thing there is um, more of an appreciation that the things that you should be doing to cut carbon, you should be doing anyway. Yeah. And they're kind of proud, I think, of a lot of their leadership they've had uh, in terms of companies and SMEs doing things in not just energy and climate, but other sustainable practices like bicycling, yeah. organic food, furniture. So um, what are some of the policy signals of this transition that we're seeing in these countries, uh, both in the short and the long run? It's interesting that most of the countries have followed relative, I guess, the same sort of policy pathway. Now, there have been some fluctuations and inconsistencies. You have greater dominance of nuclear power in Sweden and Finland. You have hydroelectricity rising to dominance in Norway, and you have wind and bioenergy in Denmark, and as I said, yeah. geothermal. So I think we have to kind of unpack that a bit. They're kind of, there's no uniform policy. There are sure. separate policies for each of those energy systems. But I think in all of them, you kind of started with a certain sequence of policy signals or actions. All of them have had carbon taxes for quite a long time. I think Denmark's is 1990 or 1992. So we've got, you know, a carbon tax that is older than my children, you know, <laughs> yeah. for instance. Before that, you had, of course, demonstration projects for clean energy systems. And you had the kind of traditional way of promoting them with tax credits mm -hmm. or government procurement and then targets yeah. 1,000 megawatts by 1980 or 2,000 megawatts yeah. by 1982. So I think you start there. Then you move towards pollution taxes in like mm -hmm. the 90s. The countries were really early adopters of feed-in tariffs especially Finland and Denmark, uh, where you give a above market rate yeah. for the residential generation of renewable electricity. Mm -hmm. uh, and those are all in the 1990s. And then very recently, you've had more kind of forceful actions like a moratorium on new coal in Denmark since yeah. the late yeah. 90s. And this kind of complete phase out, which is on the books for Denmark at least, that says no fossil fuels, period, Danish law by 2030 for electricity, 2050. Uh, for energy as a whole across yeah. the economy. So I guess you're moving kind of from RD&D to demonstration, government procurement, subsidies, to more market-driven approaches like feed-in tariffs, yeah. to then finally a kind of government push to get us off of carbon. So maybe the lesson yeah. there is even in these countries, the marketplace never would have gone all the way. Yeah. They kind of needed that extra push yeah. from uh, state-led actors. Yeah. So one of the things I've learned is, is the notion that energy transition is very slow. And the reasons behind that is the incumbent technology, incumbent um, energy um, sort of gives a pushback. Uh, they don't want to lose market ground. They'd rather improve their efficiency and it still remain relevant, basically. Have you seen that in these countries? Have you seen a pushback from the fossil fuel industry? In a, a bit. So what's interesting is, is some of the actors, the fossil fuel actors especially, have been shrewd. And so major companies like Dong, Danish oil and natural gas is what it stands for, although it's been made fun of because, you know, dong energy has other connotations. <laughs> and is it private or state-owned? Uh, it's state-linked. Okay. So it was completely state-owned, but now it's not. Okay. This kind of push for restructuring and privatization. Um, dong has not just dong, but dong energy. Mm -hmm. And dong energy is a world leader in offshore wind. So here you have an incumbent actor who's made the strategic choice to also okay. become a leader in other areas. Um and then you also have, you know, stat oil and uh, 
Eon and other country companies that are active in the Nordic region that are kind of playing both games at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Whether they're seriously committed to these technologies or not could be a longer term discussion. Uh, but there has been some resistance. That's not to say that the, the transitions have not been without conflict. Yeah. Energy prices are very high. Yeah. So I think the most significant conflict has come not necessarily from fossil fuel providers who still have a role, uh, but from social equity and poverty uh, think tanks and groups who are concerned that, you know, electricity prices are already the highest in Denmark for the entire EU. Mm. And 60% of that is tax. So they don't have to be. Yeah. And is that fair then? Is it fair that you have lower income households that have to pay a much larger share of their income yeah. in a climate that's already dominated by longer winters and heavier heating loads? So I think that's a legitimate question. And while Denmark has tried and other states have tried to do more kind of regressive, progressive policy mm -hmm. actions to offset that with helping them with low income assistance, that there's still that fundamental tension that low carbon is usually still not good for those yeah. in poverty. I suppose the second kind of level of resistance relates more to control over the system. And here, we've done some recent attitudes studies, which you can actually see in my office if you ever visit, that have surveyed the Danes in particular about their views on energy. And we found that even though we would expect them to be informed, they're not. So we gave a lot of them an energy literacy test. Basic questions, where does electricity come from? Where does yeah. gas come from? And a shockingly no number, low number, I think less than 5%. Would have gotten wow. all the questions right, and I think only less than half would have passed the test yeah. if this was an actual exam. And so, what we hypothesize from that is that well, the Danish transition might be working predominantly because you don't have a lot of stakeholders at the local level, yeah. consumers, yeah. individuals informed and engaged. And in fact, whenever certain policy instruments start to become too successful, so a good example here would be a feed-in tariff in Denmark for solar energy which they launched three or four years ago, and then it was oversubscribed in two months mm. and then repealed. Mm. Uh, so there the kind of lesson might be, we don't want to give up too much control. Yeah. It's the major players like Dong Energy or uh, EnergyNet DK, which is the transmission systems operator, or the distribution companies who have geographically defined spaces yeah. they operate in. They don't want to lose their market share. Yeah. And so they love the fact that they're able to sell power, but they don't want to actually have to buy it. Yeah. So there are, I guess, constraints on the kind of energy democracy and consumer market revolution that everyone keeps talking about. So far, most consumers in Denmark are still passive. Mm. They get an energy bill once every three months, mm. and the energy companies there are happy with that. And I think you would see a lot more resistance towards a true, interactive, smart, decentralized marketplace. Yeah, yeah. So what you've just laid out is obviously clearly multi-layered, slightly messy, um, but... <laughs> Slightly. But, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Highly messy. But uh, the, the question, of course, is like, what, what insights can we draw for other countries? Um, uh, maybe in the EU, maybe even outside the EU, but I suppose largely applicable to more developed, yeah. capable nations. Um, so for the UK, what, what insights can we draw from these countries? I mean, there are many insights. I mean, I'll, I'll try to limit, uh, yeah. I'll say three. Yeah. I think the first insight is you can have progressive climate and energy legislation that doesn't have a prophylactic or negative apocalyptic effect yeah. on economic growth. This is the myth that needs debunked in the UK and the US, that if you have strong carbon taxes, if you have strong state head intervention in energy markets, then you have suboptimal outcomes. Yeah. I think the opposite might be true, yeah. that in the kind of market failure of the UK and the US to adequately respond to things like climate change, yeah. uh, you, you have what's socially not optimal. 
So I think the fundamental single lesson is you can have both. You can have clean energy systems and economic productivity, diversified energy systems with jobs that people actually like and yeah. want, and lucrative innovation opportunities. It's not mutually exclusive. It's mm-hmm. not zero-sum. I suppose a second kind of lesson is a little more negative, and that is that even in these Danish, Nordic, Finnish, Norwegian places, the energy transition is still taking time. Mm. Even in Denmark, which leads the world in penetration of wind energy, it's about 50% now of electricity comes from wind. Significant portion, more than half, comes from combined heat and power, fueled mostly by biomass Mm. and natural gas, which is better than coal and oil. Even there, where you've got 30 years of progressive action, you still need another 15 years mm-hmm. <laughs> just to get carbon-free electricity. And we're yeah. talking at a scale that's very small. The Danish grid is a fraction the size yeah, yeah. of the UK or Germany. We have about five and a half million people hmm. in Denmark. What is that, a quarter of London? If that, yes. <laughs> that's, ah. it's, that's small, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, and even there, we're talking 2050 to be completely yeah. economy-wide free of fossil fuels. And so I guess one lesson there is that while you can have you know, accelerated bits mm. of transitions where they peak or you have switchovers that are fast. They're limited to certain niches or sectors. And then the kind of big speed uh, picture at the scale of the economy, it is a process that takes decades, if not more. Yeah. And I suppose the final takeaway is that while there is a lot to be praised for and learned from the kind of blueprint what companies have and again that blueprint is diversifying away from fossil fuels and electricity to more solar bioenergy landfill gas capture waste hydroelectricity and geothermal it's promoting biofuel advanced biofuel electric vehicles hydrogen fuel cells for cars it's further improving buildings windows doors insulation heating systems um, and it's you know finding more innovative ways to capture and store carbon especially at industrial facilities that do things like cement uh, or uh, refining or steel manufacturing. So, um, well, I think that you should look to the Nordic regions for their technology and policy kind of pathways. It's not a blueprint that you can just cut and paste into other countries. They will need modified and tweaked for China or India, Mm -hmm. right, to the different political economies, so to speak, of each of these other countries, even in the U.K., Right, you would probably need to do a lot more focusing on the issue of poverty, yeah. since fuel poverty is an issue, and incumbent actors, since yeah. the UK has a much more entrenched, I think, traditional energy industry that's been operating for years. Um, same if you talk about India or China. India is focused rightly on energy access. Yes. They don't necessarily care if it's clean or not. They just yeah. want people to get off of solid fuels yeah. and to have light and yeah. heat. And in China, they seem to be acquiring whatever they can. Yeah. People have called this the energy scramble. All of the above. above. Uh, Or the no lobbyists left behind approach, (laughs) as it's been called. So I think there there's an appreciation that we can learn from the Nordic countries, but we have to modify accordingly for the local national context that we will apply those findings in. Yeah, yeah. You did mention briefly, like for Denmark, for example, based on one of the highest prices for energy. Um, But in the UK, for instance, uh, the approach is what is called the trilemma which is energy affordability, um, energy security, and low-carbon energy. Yeah. Um, energy affordability, obviously, is a big thing. Um, can, can we expect higher prices? Or, or because is that an impediment for, for adopting some of these policies from the Nordic countries? A yes and no. Again, these complicated answers, yeah. right? 
I think part of the problem is it all depends about the rhetoric you use sometimes to sell mm -hmm. interventions. And so I remember this from the United States. When they started to do energy efficiency investments, the opposition would say rates are going up. Yeah. And the advocates would say, but prices are going down. Yeah. And that doesn't make sense, but it actually does. Because if you do energy efficiency where a utility pays to do it, the price per kilowatt hour does go up. Hmm. The rate goes up. But you consume less, yeah. so your bill goes down. So I think it partly has to do with these types of complicated framings mm -hmm. of if you if you couch it in the right way, even in the UK, you know, you can have energy interventions that are more expensive but still save you more in the long run. And a really good example here is Germany's feed-in tariff, mm -hmm. what uh, many people have said is a model possibly for the UK. There, the feed-in tariff costs about five to six billion euros a year. It did a few years ago. Sort of out of yeah. date. But for the purposes of illustration, okay, five to six billion euros gone. Yeah. Extra charges to yeah. pay for solar energy and wind energy. So on the one hand, you can point to that and say, come on, mm. that's a lot of money. Yeah. You know, especially for poor households in Germany. So you could oppose it. But then you could say, let's see what that five to six billion invested got you. And the yeah. studies seem to suggest that it's actually produced 12 to 20 billion euros in mm. benefits. And those benefits are things like reduced volatility of wholesale prices for electricity, avoided air pollution, avoided climate change, and yeah. improvements in national economic outlook, reduced dependency, you know, imports and all of that. Yeah. Uh, and so there it's kind of you're paying $5 billion to get $20 billion in benefits. But if you had never paid the $5 billion, you wouldn't have captured them. Yeah. So it's kind of a you pay a little bit to get more. So both sides have merit. Yeah. And I guess it's about how you frame them and try to sell them to the public. And here I think that the UK has a lot of the same types of import dependencies mm. that Germany has. The yeah. German economy is even bigger mm -hmm. than the British economy. So I think that there is a lot to be said there that if they can show that you get these types of benefits, maybe it's more a matter of framing them yeah. and less a matter of whether they exist. Yeah. And, and I mean, this is obviously a political question. You choose not to answer it, but <laughs> UK's presence in the EU is, is in doubt at the moment. But uh, would this be an argument for its presence in the EU in terms of having uh, a good source of influence for uh, good energy policy making in this country? Or it doesn't really matter? I think that you could unpack that question to be two smaller questions, perhaps, that are easier to answer. The one is that, does Britain have something to contribute? Does yeah. the UK have something to contribute internationally or regionally to yeah. the kind of ideas? And I think there, history suggests it does. I mean, let's not forget the Industrial Revolution started here. Yeah. Newcomen and Watt, steam engines and all of that, yeah. which now are the foundations for mobility yeah. and heat, trains and all of that, started in this country. Yeah. So there you've got diffusions of innovations that have had global adoption. And more recently, looking not at technology, but at policy actions, mm -hmm. the reforms that Margaret Thatcher did about restructuring and privatization and all of that uh, have been adopted as a model for yeah. South America, Africa, even the U.S. About half of the states in the U.S. have modified and changed their electricity regulations following what's been called the British model. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, you know, you have two moments in history, one really long ago, one yeah. not so long ago, where Britain led, the U.K. led. Uh, and the question is kind of now, why aren't they leading? Yeah. You know, you have a lot of expertise spanning offshore wind, looking at efficiency and retrofits, right? All these kind of spaces that you're getting cannibalized, the kind yeah. of market edge that the UK has. And I suppose the second thing to say, and maybe this is why, uh, is looking at energy systems and markets as, can, as uh, isolated is no longer accurate. Mm -hmm. 
they're all interconnected. So yeah. it's a mistake to say that BP operates only in Britain, right? They're operating around the world. Yes. And it's a mistake to say that the researchers here are only plugged into networks within the country. Yeah. No, they're going to conferences abroad and yeah. vice versa. There's a circulation of ideas and capital and all of that. So I, there, I think that because interconnection seems to matter, having a European Union or an energy union right, has a lot more benefits than it has costs. Yeah. Right? Sharing of information, sharing of knowledge, sharing of energy. If the UK becomes a lot more interconnected to Germany and Denmark, for instance, that could only be good from a kind of security systems standpoint. Diversification, usually done rightly, has more benefits than it has costs, even yeah. if it seems to be expensive up yeah. front. And so while I have no political stake in the UK, I can't even vote because yeah. I've just moved here yeah. and I'm an American citizen. So I say this not with an idea for sure. you know political affiliation, but to me, I mean, it's a mistake to think of Britain forevermore as the island country that's yeah. by itself especially in challenges related to climate change, yes. which affect humanity yes. and our patrimony in future generations. We're all in the same boat, yeah. even yeah. if we're at different parts of the, yeah. of the seating arrangement. True. Well, it's a nice segue to my final question. <laughs> <laughs> on, uh, I mean, it, studies have suggested that Nordic countries have um, relatively less of impact on them on cl by climate change, but a greater capacity mm. to, to deal with climate change. So it, it sort of begs the question of, of what responsibility and justice does that entail of Nordic countries towards the rest of the world? Well, I think it's one that the Nordic countries take quite seriously. And so if anyone's been following the kind of climate change discussions post Paris or even a little bit before then, there is this issue of equity yeah. and adaptation funding. Rich countries like the U.S. continually pledge billion, I think it's $100 billion to this green climate fund, but then never pay. Yeah. And we actually looked uh, recently at some of the local more smaller scale adaptation funding schemes like the uh, least developed countries fund or the special fund. These are all run from the GEF. And even there you see pledges that are yeah. never honored. Yeah. Right. And so there's this kind of issue of who should pay. And what's interesting is off the top of my head, I believe Norway mm -hmm. and Germany, which is not a Nordic country, are usually the kind of leaders. They're always yeah. leading the way and making investments into these types of funds. So there seems to be an appreciation that there is a responsibility of these countries, however small they are, yeah. uh, to contribute globally towards building capacity. And I have seen, seems to be led a lot by the Norwegians because they have their oil fund yeah. and they have more resources. And if you look terms in terms of energy output, fund, the sovereign yeah. wealth fund. Well, they have a sovereign wealth fund, a natural resource fund. Yeah. Um, also in terms of energy output, they're yeah. the behemoth. They yeah. have you know 20 times the levels of production than yeah. any of the other Nordic countries. And they're wealthier, yeah. the wealthiest yeah. countries in the so yeah. they seem to take it quite seriously. And I see calls every six months or a year for grants, partnerships, programs, and training to focus on Africa yeah. or South America. And I think that that's good. Could they do more? Yes. Yeah. And are there equity issues that look at Nordic energy the other way? Yes, there are certain imports of, say, biofuel from South Asia, yeah. Southeast Asia, yeah. palm oil from Indonesia yeah. and Malaysia that raise serious questions about sustainability. But for the most part... I think that they take these issues more seriously than many other places in yeah. the world. And I think if there was a strong ethic uh, about kind of responsibility, while you can, of course, identify drawbacks, at least it seems to be beginning to emerge in the Nordic region. Yeah, yeah. Cool. All right. Thank you so much, Ben. You're welcome. So that was Ben Sovakul from the University of Sussex, talking about the energy transition underway in the Nordic countries. You can find the transcript of the interview below, along with a few useful links on Ben and his work. The shift is recorded in Brighton at the University of Sussex. We bring researchers and thinkers from across the UK and hopefully the world to share their latest research on issues of energy and sustainability. 
So keep an eye out for more podcasts, subscribe and share it with the social links that you can find on this page. Now, finally, we'd love to hear from you. If you want to co-host the show, help edit the podcast, set up an interview or improve the podcast in any manner, please write to us on the website. So until then, keep listening to The Shift. Thank you.